You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 16, our focus today will be on verses 4 through 15. I'll be reading 16, 1 through 15. John 16, beginning with verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Therefore, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on us now. Forgive us our sins. And may we not quench the Spirit. It's a peculiar thing to ask. Because I know it means. Father. We're asking that your Spirit would work. So that your Spirit might work. Father. These are the things. That you've entrusted to us by your apostles. These are spirit inspired words. May they now be spirit illuminated words. For the glory of Christ in your people. Sanctify your people. Save sinners. We are insufficient for this. And so we look to you father to send your spirit. Magnify Christ now in his name we pray. Amen. Our text begins in this way, verse 1, I have said 
Verse 4. I have said. Again, verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because. Verse 6. I have said. Verse 7. I tell you the truth. And then it makes a transition. Ending this way. Verse 8, he will convict. Verse 13, he will guide. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. I have said, he will declare. And my prayer is that you realize that is a good and glorious transition and why it is one. But first, what are these things that Jesus has been saying to them? I think there's both a narrow and a broad reference to what Jesus has been saying here. Narrowly, these things concern the persecution that they can expect. Jesus has said to them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, verse 18. And that this is still in view is clear because Jesus says, 16 and verse 1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So immediately... These things concern the persecution they can expect. Broadly, it's a reference to everything Jesus has been saying to them in this upper room discourse running from chapters 13 to chapter 17. You can see it and that Jesus has been saying, I have been saying throughout the sermon. So one instance. Chapter 14, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Here, verse 4 again of our text. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So this is a phrase Jesus has been using throughout the sermon. I've said these things to you. So this recalls the whole of everything Jesus has said so far. And you can also see it in that Jesus tells them that because of what he's saying to them right here, sorrow has filled their heart, verse 6. And it's clear as you read this upper room discourse as a whole, sorrow has filled their hearts, not because he's told them, you will be persecuted. Sorrow has filled their hearts because he's told them, I am going away. And as you look ahead in verses 16 through 24, that's what's in view again. As to their sorrow, he's leaving them, he's going away. Earlier he told them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. And he went on after that to tell them, let not your hearts be troubled. Why were they troubled? Because he told them. He's going to be with them only a little longer. So broadly, these things concern Jesus' death, His going to be with the Father, 
His sending the Spirit, the promises that He's made concerning their prayers being heard, the promise of coming to them with the Father and making their home with them, the command to abide in Christ, to abide in His love, to abide in His Word, and finally the command to love one another. Jesus has said these things to them. Why has He said these things to them? Three reasons are given in verses 1 through 4. First, He says them so that they might not fall away under persecution. Second, so that they may remember these things later, verse 4. And third, He says these things to them because He's going away to the Father, verses 4 and 5. Jesus didn't say these things while He was with them, but now that He's going away, He tells them these things. And last week, we looked at the immediate reason as it bears on this explanation. So, Jesus doesn't want them to fall away under persecution. He's going away. He's telling them these things so that they might remember them in the midst of that persecution. Be sustained, not lose faith. Hold fast, not fail, but continue. But now... Looking at this last explanation, it it reminds us of the bigger context. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And it recalls their sorrow. He's leaving them. The whole setting for this upper room discourse. But they're not getting it. Jesus' words are having the opposite effect of what they should. Immediately... Because of the weakness of the disciples. While Jesus is promising these words will have their intended effect later because of the strength of Christ in His death and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit. Immediately, these words are not having their effect intended because of weakness in them. They will have the intended effect later because of the strength of Christ. Jesus is telling them right now when they're weak so that they might remember later and be strong. Jesus' words, if they're properly understood, should result in joy and peace and encouragement and faith. But instead, they're having the effect of sorrow and grief. This is how you make sense of what Jesus says at the end of verse 5. Now I'm going to Him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? That's strange, isn't it? If you've followed along in this upper room discourse, that's a very striking statement because it's precisely what Peter asked Jesus. Chapter 13, Jesus said, yet a little while I'm with you, and Peter in reply asked, Lord, where are you going? Chapter 14, Thomas makes a statement which is really restating the question. 14 and verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So what does Jesus mean? None of you ask me, where are you going? I think there are two ways we can understand this. They amount to the same thing, but two ways. Jesus, I think, is either saying something like, I'm going away, and you're no longer asking me where I'm going, but you're still sorrowful. You're no longer asking, I've answered it, 
I'm going away. I've answered. You're no longer asking that question, and you're still sorrowful. You don't get it. Or the more likely answer, I think, is this. You've asked where, but you didn't hear the answer. You're not asking anymore. You should be asking again because you haven't heard the answer. Before, you didn't ask because you wanted to hear an answer. You asked because you wanted to express your grief. Lord, where are you going? It wasn't about you hearing my answer. It was about you expressing your grief. You need to keep asking it. If they really heard the answer, the result would have been joy. 14, 27 through 28, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus gives another purpose statement. For this discourse, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus in this upper room is pouring out his heart to these disciples, expressing his love and making all these rich gospel saturated promises so that their faith might be fanned into flame so that they might have peace, so that they might have joy. And they're sorrowful and grieved. Do not shake your head at them. They were sorrowful in ignorance of the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And, how, and they were sorrowful for understanding something of the death of Christ. How often are you sorrowful for with knowledge of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and sorrowful over such pathetic things in comparison. We shake our heads at the apostles. See ourselves here so much less in comparison. Saints, when you are down over such fickle things, return to this upper room Read this upper room discourse. These words are for your peace. For your faith. Return to these chapters. Prayerfully seeking the Spirit's blessing on them. And see your faith fanned afresh into flame. Vibrant so that it might bear fruit for the kingdom. The disciples fail to understand the nature of Jesus' departure. And why it's a cause for them to rejoice. Jesus is going away, he tells them, is for their advantage. Jesus is going so that he might send the Spirit. He must go in order for him to send the Spirit. Verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. Jesus' absence means the Spirit's presence. Jesus must be absent 
for the Spirit to be a present. And he's making this clear. This is not a detriment. This is to your advantage. This is not a bad trade. This is not a retreat in redemption. This is an advance of redemption. And at this point, I think we should have two questions in our mind. If you're reading Scripture properly, you're not only going to get the right answers, you're getting the right answers because you start to ask the right questions. And I think the two questions that should come into your mind at this point are, why does Jesus have to be absent for the Spirit to be present? And two, why is it an advantage to have the Spirit instead of Christ? And the answer to those two questions, it's bound, one is bound up with the other. You answer one, you've answered the other. Why must Jesus be absent for the Spirit to be present? Why is it an advantage to have the Spirit present instead of Christ present? In fourteen sixteen, Jesus said, I will ask the Father. And He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Now, I will ask. This is future. This is the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ who's asking the Father. You start seeing the connection here? He says that He has to go away or the Helper will not come. But if I go... I will send him to you. And you see that sending happens upon the basis of his intercession before the Father. And we know it as a great high priest who has laid his life down and made atonement once for all who intercedes. And upon the basis of that intercession, the Spirit is then sent. In chapter 14, we saw it was the Father who sent the Spirit. Here it's the Son who sends the Spirit. How do we understand this dual sending and how they're in harmony? Well, we understand it because of the indivisible works of the Trinity, where one works, they all work. But there is a distinct working here. The Spirit comes as the gift of the Father and the purchase of the Son. The Spirit comes as the gift of the Father and the purchase of the Son. The Spirit's being sent is an expression of of the ascended Christ's heavenly rule as our Redeemer. The Spirit being sent testifies Christ has ascended and is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is absent because He's enthroned as King over all. The Spirit tells you that. The Spirit His presence tells you Jesus is no longer in his state of humiliation. He's in his state of exaltation. King of kings and Lord of lords. Physically he's present. Spiritually he's Lord over all. Not as he was eternally as the sovereign. He's Lord over all as your redeemer interceding for you. And the spirit is given as evidence thereof. It tells you that the ascended and risen Christ is heard of the Father. You have the Spirit. In Ephesians 4, 7 through 12, there's language there that speaks of the ascended Christ giving gifts to men. 
And he uses the language of spoils of war. Christ is risen in victory. And the gifts that he gives to the church are the spoils of his victory. These gifts are given by the Spirit. The Spirit's presence, you see, is not a loss, it's a gain. It does not represent a retreat, but an advance of redemption. And the Spirit's presence does not mean less Christ, it means more Christ. John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. You look at the context of the upper room discourse, how is Jesus saying He will come to them? He tells you, 1423, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. How does this happen? By the Spirit. The persons of the Trinity mutually indwell one another. You don't get just one. By the gift of the Spirit, you have the Father and the Son. Persons of the Trinity mutually indwell one another. 14.11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And they make their home with us by the Spirit. So this gives you some idea of how Christ's absence is to our advantage. And how this is not a bad trade. And why it is that he must leave in order for the Spirit to come. But Jesus goes on to deal with two particular ways this is to our advantage. And the first is the Spirit's ministry to the world. And the second is the Spirit's ministry to the apostles. So his ministry to the world, verses 8 through 11. The Spirit has a threefold ministry to this world. Or rather, we might say he has a singular ministry with a threefold emphasis. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world. That is his singular ministry to the world. He convicts the world. Threefold emphasis of sin, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then each of those three... Res- Uh, receives a because statement, an explanation. And it's at this point that this text gets difficult. R.C. Sproul introduces these words. I have to tell you, frankly, that I'm not certain what this passage means. That's encouraging. Of course, he then goes on to give a very lucid and clear argument as to what he believes convincing argument as to what he believes they mean. D.A. Carson has his finger on the reason why this is so difficult. The Greek of these four verses is so compressed that it's difficult to decide exactly what is meant. There's not a lot of elaboration here. It is, it is very terse, very short, not a lot of words here to, to get a grasp of what's being said. I believe the best way forward is to understand each of these because statements as telling you the grounds upon which that particular convicting work of the Spirit is done. I think that will be clear as we proceed. And to understand this, your understanding that the Spirit is doing this work as He's sent 
by the Son. And so this is happening in the wake of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So think of it this way. Because Jesus has died, risen, and ascended, therefore the Spirit convicts upon these grounds. Because. That's how these function. So first, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven. Therefore, the Spirit convicts of sin because the world does not believe in Jesus. Verse 9. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Outside of Christ, men stand condemned in their sin. And so I believe the idea here is not so much that He convicts them of sin, particularly their sin of not believing in Jesus. No. Because they don't believe in Jesus, they are in their sins. And the particular thing the the Spirit is convicting the world of in the wake of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the, the Spirit has always convicted men that they're sinners. But in particular now, because Jesus died, rose, and has ascended, He is convicting them that they are in their sins because they don't believe. There's only one remedy for sin, and you don't have it. You're in your sin. The death and resurrection and ascension of Christ tells sinners, this and this alone deals with sin. And if you don't have Christ, you are in sin. Second, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended to heaven. Therefore, the Spirit convicts this world of righteousness because Jesus has gone to the Father and we see Him no more. Jesus' righteousness exposes the sham righteousness of this world. And the resurrection of our Lord is the vindication of the righteousness of Christ. He's no longer present, but the Spirit makes Christ present in that truth to this world. The resurrection is His vindication, Romans 1, 4. He, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see that? He's declared to be the Son. How? According to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is God's condemnation of man's condemnation of His Son. It's God erasing man's verdict and writing His verdict large for all the world to see. 1 Timothy 3.16 has this poetic expression that many think is an early hymn of the church that Paul incorporated in his letter. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Which is, he's, that's meaning the gospel, the mystery of godliness. Here it is, this poetic expression of the gospel. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Incarnation, resurrection, ascension. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So by His resurrection, His righteousness is made plain 
and the world is convicted, they see what true righteousness is. Their sin is made clear in light of His righteousness. Third, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. Therefore, the Spirit convicts this world of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Verse 10. The ruler has been judged. The world can see what awaits it in the judgment of its ruler. Ephesians 2.2 tells us that this world follows the prince of the power of the air. They follow Him in His disobedience. They will follow Him in His judgment. John 12, 31, anticipating the cross, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In the judgment of the ruler of this world, the verdict of this world was set as well. And thus the Spirit convicts them. So do you see in this that the Spirit's ministry to this world in the wake of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension is the ministry of Christ, as we've seen it throughout the gospel, carried on by the Spirit. It is Christ's ministry. It is the ministering of Christ to this world. And because Jesus has ascended, here's what happens. Christ and what He did is no longer localized, but it's globalized. It is to your advantage that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come. With the Spirit come, my ministry, the same ministry, is no longer localized, it's globalized. It's the same ministry that we see in John 3, 19 through 20, come to its fullness. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now ask yourself, how does the Spirit do this ministry in the world? And Jesus has already told you the answer. One way to get at it is, what was the effect of this ministry? What was the result of Jesus' ministry? Well, they wanted to kill Him. Okay, so wherever the Spirit is continuing this work today, where are people wanting to kill Jesus? John 15, 26 through 27, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness. Because you've been with me from the beginning. The Spirit does this ministry through the apostles and He does it through His church. That's why He tells them, if the world hated me, know that it has hated me before it hates you. Know that it hated me before it hates you. So naturally then, we go from this ministry to the world to the ministry of the Spirit to the apostles. Verses 12 through 15. Jesus, we see, He tells them, He said much to them, but he, he, he still has much to say. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So Jesus has been talking about the Spirit's ministry to them throughout this upper room discourse as the Spirit coming and reminding them of what He has said to them. We've already seen that. 
Now he's saying that the Spirit will not only come and remind them of things that Jesus said to them, he will come and say to them, the apostles, the things that they couldn't bear at this point. So the the Spirit not only expounds upon Christ as he reminds them of what Jesus said to them, he expands upon Christ. By that I mean he teaches them more of Christ than they were able to bear at this moment. You see, again, it's to their advantage that he goes away. As the Spirit comes in the death, resurrection, and ascension of, the, of, of Christ, the Spirit will then not only expound upon Christ crucified, risen and ascended, he will expand upon that. And now we see a twofold ministry of the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And I think on contemplation, you can once again see it's a singular ministry with a twofold expression. And you have explanatory phrases that follow again that make clear what that is. Here's, here's the Spirit's twofold ministry He guides them into all truth, verse 13, and He glorifies Christ. He guides them into truth and He glorifies Christ. You'll see those are the same thing. Guiding them into all truth means guiding them into truth that glorifies Christ. Glorifying Christ means guiding them into this Christ-glorifying truth. And then these explanatory phrases help fill out how that is. Let's take each of them in turn. First, the Spirit of truth guides them into all truth, verse 13. And the reason the Spirit guides them into all truth, explanation is, that He doesn't speak on His own authority. He will guide you into all, all the truth for... He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you things that are to come. The Spirit doesn't speak on His own authority. I think you get some sense of what this means whenever you rewind and listen to how Jesus has used that same language throughout this gospel, chapter 7, 16 and 17. My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. John 8, 38. I speak of what I have seen with my Father. 12, 49 through 50. I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So as Jesus was sent by the Father, now the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. He speaks these things that Jesus wanted to tell them, but they couldn't bear. He speaks Christ's words to us. He comes as another paraclete, remember? Another comforter, another helper, another teacher. So what Jesus could not then teach them, the Spirit will thereafter. In doing so, he tells them the things that are to come. Now, our default way of understanding this is, oh, this refers to eschatology, to the mysterious things that happen at the end, things that are to come. I don't think that's that's included in this, but I don't think that's the primary way you're meant to understand. He will tell you things that are to come. This goes right back to, there are things that I want to tell you and you can't bear them now. What are those things that that he wants to tell them that they can't bear now? It's the things that are shortly to come. His death. 
I want to expound and expand on that, but you can't bear it. You're sorrowful with me talking about leaving you. But the Spirit will tell you of the things that are to come. And whenever He's telling you, they'll, they'll have been passed at that point. He will expound and expand on Christ crucified and risen. The apostolic writings are commentary on the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ. And it's in this way that as He's sent by Christ to expound upon Christ, that the Spirit leads them into all truth. Expounding and expanding on Christ. Second, the Spirit glorifies Christ, verse 14. He will glorify me. How does the Spirit glorify Christ? Well, you see how it's all related to the Spirit doesn't speak on His own authority. Upon what authority does He speak? He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. How does that happen? Verse 14, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, what does the Son have that the Spirit then declares to us? Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. So the Spirit, uh, the, the Son, He's sent by the Father, and He declares whatever the Father says to Him. And now the ascended Son receives all things from His Father, and the Spirit comes testifying to the inheritance of the Son. And then you start to just be... In awe, when you recognize what this means is, I'm said to be a co-heir with Christ. And the Holy Spirit is said to be the guarantee of our inheritance in Ephesians 1. I'm a co-heir with Christ, Romans 8, Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit comes as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Son receives this inheritance... And the Spirit comes as the guarantee that that inheritance that the Son has received is ours in Christ. Now, Jesus is eternally Lord over all. All things are His. Father, Son, and Spirit, Lord, equally Overall, God overall. Here, Jesus being given all things by the Father is in reference to Him as our Redeemer, as the God man, as the Christ, as the Son of David, as our federal head, as our mediator. And it's in that capacity, as our federal head and representative, He's given all things. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. 13.3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. Whenever Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine, this is harmonious with the resurrected Christ telling the disciples right before He gives them the great commission, making the great declaration, all authority in heaven and on earth has been 
given to me. What does he mean? It's been given to me. He's God. He's always had it. No, he's telling them right now, Christ incarnate, your federal head and representative, the Christ, the Messiah, he's been given all things. Your Lord has all things. The one that you are in union with by the Spirit has all things, and the Spirit comes to you testifying to you of all that you have in Christ. What Jesus receives from the Father, He gives by the Spirit. That's in a sentence what's happening here. What Jesus receives of the Father, He gives by the Spirit. Now, this was the Spirit's ministry to the apostles. What of His ministry to the church today? Saints, in the same way that the apostles did not have less for Jesus' physical absence, you do not have less for not only Jesus' physical absence, not having His physical presence, you don't have less For you're not being an apostle. You don't have less for not having apostles. You have the apostolic word. What the Spirit expounded on and expanded on, you have. And by the Spirit-inspired word of the apostles, the Spirit speaks still and ministers Christ and glorifies Christ and thus convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Be stunned at this thought. Peter didn't have access to all the apostolic testimony that you do. John didn't have access To all the apostolic testimony that you do. Paul didn't have access to all the apostolic testimony that you do. Thank God for the apostles. But recognize this. Their greatness is not found in who they were. But what they received. Christ expounded on and expanded on. And you have it. You have Christ. You don't need an apostle. You've got them already. They laid the foundation of the church. And you stand on it. You stand higher. You stand upon that foundation that they laid. If you daydream, it would be nice to to be an apostle and have the Spirit speak to me in this kind of way. You miss the magnificence of the apostles. The magnificence is that they received revelation of Christ and you have the same revelation. You have the Spirit of Christ to illuminate the Spirit-inspired words that they received. Stop wishing for apostolic revelation when you already have it. Stop begging for a match when you stand in the noonday sun of revelation. Jesus crucified, risen, ascended, And returning is herein expounded and expanded on by the Spirit. And by these Spirit-inspired words, He teaches us still. Saints, here the apostles were sorrowful for their ignorance. Don't mimic their stupidity. When Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God, after he saw the resurrected Christ, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
you've not known Jesus' physical presence. Neither are you an apostle to whom the Spirit has given these things immediately. But you have the Spirit, and you've been given the Spirit-inspired words. The things that they could not then bear to hear, you've heard. The things that were later to, to be declared to them, you have them. And it's this same apostle who would go on to write these words about his own apostolic words. John, 1 John 1, 1 1-4. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So you see the we is an apostolic we. We've seen, we've touched, we've heard, and we declare and we proclaim it to you. It continues. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, you may have fellowship with us. And he's not talking, we're telling you this so we can go out and get lunch. He explains that. This is so that we're proclaiming this so that you can have fellowship with us. And indeed, our, that hour is not working in the same way that the we, you worked earlier. Now it's an hour. We're proclaiming this to you So that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The proclaimed word the Apostle is telling us is so that you might have fellowship with the Apostles, with the Father and the Son. He goes on. And we are writing these things so that our, I think it's the same inclusive our as that previous one. So that our joy may be complete. Do not be sorrowful. The apostolic word of Christ is yours. So that your joy may be complete. Or another way translated, that word is perfect, full. Nothing lacking. Don't be sorrowful. Christ is redeemed. Christ is risen, Christ rules, Christ will return. And the Spirit-inspired testimony of that truth is yours to be understood by the Spirit who indwells you. Sinner, what is this apostolic testimony that... Not only convicts, but if believed on, is your only hope of redemption. What is this apostolic testimony? In brief, it's this. That the eternal and only begotten Son of God, remaining what He was, God, took on human flesh. And He lived a life of perfect righteousness. To be counted to all those who would trust in Him. And He died in the stead of sinners. 
bearing the wrath and judgment of the Father. And He rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father, from whence He rules as sovereign Redeemer over all. And He will return to judge the world and to make all things new. And so His people will forever be with Him. And the blessed good news is that whosoever would believe, trust in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, Son of God, whosoever would so trust in Him will not perish, but know everlasting life in His kingdom forever. And so, sinner, it's our hope that as Christ has been proclaimed, you're not merely convicted of your sin. You're convicted Jesus is Lord. And that's your confession. I'm a sinner. He's Lord. Lord, cleanse me. Save me. And if you've prayed something like that, even where you sit, I would love to talk with you. One of our elders would. A member sitting next to you would love to speak with you. Let's look to our God now in prayer. Holy Father, oh, how I pray our hearts are markedly overflowing, your, your people's hearts, with gratitude for your Spirit. Forgive us for quenching Forgive us for even blaspheming, belittling the Spirit. Thinking Him less than your Son. Oh, great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you that in the gospel you did nothing less than this. Nothing can be bigger than this. You gave us yourself. All of you. That's our inheritance. And in the Son, we have God. So Father, for your saints, may our faith be strengthened now. May our peace be profound. May our joy be full. And Father, we ask again for those here that don't know Christ, convict them, draw them, regenerate them, save them, make them new. What we're pleading is what you promised here. Your spirit will glorify Christ. Father, we plead Glorify your Son in the salvation of sinners now. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.